Welcome to the Health and Wealth Power Hour, the podcast provides you with the knowledge and insights you need to achieve physical, mental, and financial well-being. I'm your host, Arlen Pickett, a business consultant who's passionate about helping people achieve a more balanced and healthier life. Each week, we'll deep dive into topics related to health and wealth, including retirement income planning, innovative healthcare solutions, alternative funded health plans, and specific actions individuals and business owners can take to gain control of their finances, have access to affordable quality health care, and achieve peace of mind. We'll also be joined by innovative experts who will share their knowledge and insights on prevalent topics. So, whether you're looking to grow your wealth or improve your health, you've come to the right place. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and empowered. Let's get started. All right, and welcome to the Health and Wealth Power Hour. It is great to have you with us this week. Man, we're going to talk about some crazy stuff today. Medical tourism. It's a big, big deal. If you didn't have any idea how prevalent um, that uh, medical tourism is, you're going to learn about it today. And it's not always where you think it is. Sometimes people are going places you're like, who would have even thought about that? Uh, Some of the highest rated and highest value and highest quality places to get health care are not where you believe. Quick hint, it's not the United States. (sighs) Shocking, isn't it? Probably not, because if you ever know anything about our healthcare system, it is a convoluted mess. Very complex, very confusing. While a lot of people do come here to get healthcare, because we have some very great quality centers for excellence here, we have great healthcare here in the United States, but navigating through the system is so complex that many times, many, many times, people choose to go to other countries to get it done. And who can blame them? Well, we are blessed to have an expert on that exact subject. David Venquest, PhD, out over at the the University of Incarnate Word in San Antonio. You have spent a lot of time in this industry and and really focused on this particular uh, dynamic that's going on. Way before the pandemic, but even more changes since then. David, welcome aboard, buddy. Thank you so much. And Harlan, I just have to tell you, I've um, been an admirer. I'm so proud of you doing this podcast and particularly doing it out of um, our hometown and just uh, glad to be here and proud to be here. Thank you so very much. So what in the world would have made you want to get involved in medical tourism? What did you just one day wake up and say, you know, what would be fun <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it, it's actually a great story. I'll tell you a little bit of the story. It's a longer story, but I'll tell you a little bit of the story. So um, I, I was a former consultant uh, with Ernst & Young, and then uh, from there went over and was an executive with HCA, which happens to own some local facilities here in San Antonio called the Methodist Healthcare System. It's well known uh, here in this region. And uh, as I was working there, uh, we, we had this really nice little revenue stream of Mexican nationals, typically affluent Mexican nationals that would come across the border, come into San Antonio. 
And so let's say the, the guy was having a, a surgery done. His wife would go up to, at that time, North Star Mall, now La Cantera, and the kids would go up with a nanny and they would go out to Six Flags and they would spend a lot of money in San Antonio. So it was this wonderful economic um, generation for the community and specifically for our facilities, they paid in cash. And so it was a very profitable form of business. And we got quite a bit of that. And even still to this day, some of the hospitals here in the San Antonio area see a fair amount of money from, for example, birth tourism, where people come here for um, uh, what's sometimes called as anchor babies, or but uh, also the birth tourism, where they actually come for birthing procedures. Um, and their children are actually uh, Amer American residents and then international residents so they can have uh, where that where that's allowed uh, two passports yeah that's that's very interesting and uh, one thing I failed to, to to mention is you're actually the founder and the director of the Center for Medical Tourism Research there at University of Incarnate Word so you're not just a proponent of it you have researched it you've really uh, made it a mission and it, it's a department at a university that, that focuses on this and looks at this and researches this and looks at the ebb and flow of what's going on. And I know we talked a little bit before we got started here, there was a huge uh, you know downturn in that during the pandemic, obviously, because people couldn't go anywhere. But what are you seeing in recovery of that? Yeah, so uh, just to kind of, uh, and I apologize, a little bit of a long thing. Uh, so after I dropped out of industry and came to the university, I, I had this memory of these medical tourism uh, treatments that were going on, and I had to pick a research agenda as a professor at the at the uh, HEB School of Business Administration as a professor. And so I had to have a research agenda and I didn't have one coming from industry. So I started looking into this medical tourism. And it just so happens at the time, there's no other professors uh, around the world that were focused on that. And so I started researching that. And that's kind of how that all came about. And uh, just one thing led to another, and I kept doing work and kept becoming known, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world for it. And it became kind of a thing. Um, the uh, one thing I'd love to the talk about a variety of these issues. One of the things I don't always know that it's good. It just is. Does that make sense? So in other words, I'm not sure if you characterize me as a proponent of it as much as I would say, I understand it and believe that it's going to continue. And when it comes to the something that we talked about earlier, and as you pointed out, the, the pandemic, uh, what happened during the pandemic was, of course, you know, travel of all types was, uh, was decreased around the world, if not outright uh, made illegal. And, and there was certain right. types of regulatory schemes that, that didn't allow it. But actually, some of the things that happened during the pandemic because of the lockdowns, because of human behavior, because of how the healthcare system changed in some ways during the pandemic, it actually increased the viability and the, the potential of medical tourism, not just domestically in the United States, but internationally all around the world. And we're going to talk about all those things. It's, it's just really fascinating right now. And it's, uh, it's, it's incredible. It's just, uh, it's a growing, 
it's a growing enterprise right now. And fast is one, one of the fastest growing things that's happening in healthcare, uh, not only domestically, but internationally as well. Well, in, in it's, it's interesting. And I think it is being brought to light in many mainstream ways too. Uh, one of the things that you were telling me about, and I've actually seen some of the, the interviews that you've had with pretty big media outlets and a different, uh, not just here in, in the United States, but worldwide, as you were saying, that are talking about this. This is not just happening here. No. This is happening in many other countries, uh, whether they have socialized medicine or not. Is that's, That has, has no bearing whatsoever. Although in some cases, that is the reason why someone may have done it, because they don't want to wait months or years to have something to do. But the number one... It, I could be wrong here, but the last numbers that I saw, the number one place that Americans go for medical tourism is actually Canada. Is that correct? That is incorrect, actually. So the, the okay. some people some people want to think that, uh, but actually the number of Americans that travel to Canada is quite small. Number one destination, this is backed up not only by our research, but actually researchers from the CDC. Uh, they did a very large scale study back in 2016, prior to the pandemic, uh, worked on the paper, released the paper during the pandemic, the end of the pandemic. And it was uh, uh, it was published in 2022, uh, which showed that about 50 percent of all Americans that were sampled uh, that had engaged in medical tourism actually traveled to Mexico. Mexico is the number one destination for Americans. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I'll go through a few of them. One is and again, we're from Texas, so we know what we're what's going on, which is uh, obviously uh, we share hundreds of miles of border with Mexico. Um, and we have uh, a number of people, my gosh, in San Antonio alone, I think uh, 65% of the population has Spanish surnames. Um, so we have a large Hispanic population uh, in the Southwest, in Texas, in California, in New Mexico, Arizona, uh, bordering uh Mexico. And that population, according to CDC's numbers, as well as some other numbers that we've looked at over the years, are about three times as likely to travel for healthcare internationally, and obviously, particularly into Mexico and other Latin countries. And so uh, there's that. Uh, there's also the fact that some of the fastest growing populations in the US are all in the Southwest. I mean, if you've looked at population growth, it's uh, except for California, it's in places like Las Vegas, it's in places like Phoenix, it's in places like San Antonio, Austin, New Braunfels, San Marcos, all these places are just growing by leaps and bounds. So we have this huge population um, in the Southwest that's growing. We're an a younger population, as is Hispanics generally in the United States, where a younger population than the population in the United States, um, they have larger family sizes. Uh, we have uh, issues with healthcare access, particularly in in rural places throughout Texas and and in the Southwest, and definitely in places like the Valley. Um, and I'll explain why that's a specific circumstance. Uh, we have large numbers of immigration, which is also increasing our population. And by the way, immigrants are more likely to travel internationally for healthcare than uh, native born Americans are. Hmm. So all these things combined 
are, are reasons why Mexico is number one. Interesting, travel to Canada. There is travel to Canada and increasingly pharmaceutical tourism from Canada. And that doesn't have to be in person now. That can also be online. But very few Americans travel to Canada to facilities. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is uh, there's a limited number of private facilities in Canada. In fact, there's been some regulatory, um, uh, if you will, constraints, uh, barriers, kind of like a certificate of need in Canada that haven't allowed for the establishment of private facilities. You may recall the uh, a very well-known uh, senator, um, who is the son of a Texas uh, former uh, Republican presidential candidate, Ron Paul. Rand Paul uh, had traveled up to Canada to a, tra uh, to a private facility for a specialized um, treatment up there after he was injured due to somebody attacking him um, while he was, um, I forgot why he was on the campaign trail or why he was at home. But anyway, so he traveled to Canada, but very few people actually travel to Canada. It's more common for Canadians to travel to the United States. And we actually have those numbers, uh, thanks to the U.S. government, uh, does track numbers. Uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis tracks uh, balance of trade and health services. And so Canadians, and, and by the way, you ever go down to Galveston or Corpus Christi, you're going to see the winter Texans that come here during the wintertime and, and a lot of Canadians, and they tend to get health care when they're here because... As you pointed out, Harlan, they they experience sometimes very long wait times. Uh, according to Canadian sources, there's a Canadian think tank that, that actually tracks this every year. They sometimes can wait three to six months uh, for a procedure, even a simple imaging procedure. So it's very easy for them to go across into the United States and get access to care. But uh, Americans aren't typically traveling for to places for socialized medicine. They don't travel to Great Britain. They don't travel to Canada. They are more likely to travel to places like Mexico, Colombia, um, uh, Germany, which has socialized medicine, uh, India, which does not have as, as much of a socialized medicine approach. Um, they typically travel to private facilities that have really good reputations, um, but they, they don't travel as much to Canada. Well, and, it, and it's interesting when I read that information, it didn't make sense to me. No, it, it, it simply didn't make sense to me. My only thought there was that it was it, it was grouping even the medications, because I do know a lot of people get their medications internationally. And if they're using that as the, the matrix there to put that all together. OK, but I have never met one single person in my life that went to Canada to have health care, whereas I know. A lot of them that have gone to Mexico. Mexico. And by uh, the way, so the, we're not including members. So I'm just including then the CDC didn't include it either. Didn't include the pharmaceutical tourism, which you and I know is huge because right. all you have to do from here in San Antonio, you can drive a couple of miles. You can be at a, a little Texas town called Eagle Pass. That's right on the border, right across the border. There's a little casino there and it's right across the border 
from Piedras Negras. Uh, and if you go across the border anywhere in Texas, but there, for example, you're going to see pharmacias uh, as far as the eye can see, pharmacias and dental clinics. And, yeah, when, the CDC, yeah. and when the <laughs> CDC uh, looked at the, the research and they found Americans, they found about 50% going to Mexico. Of those, about 50% of them were going for dental. They didn't cover pharmaceutical tourism. Our uh, research uh, looks into pharmaceutical and we know it's huge, but we don't know the total numbers because it's a little bit more gray market, but it's massive as you pointed out. So uh, when you're including pharmaceutical tourism and dental tourism into Mexico, it's, it's just enormous. Um, no, now, and it's amazing too, because, you know, I've, I've had clients that say, okay, I can't get this, especially when you're going to diabetic medications, okay? They'll make that trip down there. They'll go across the border, and they'll have some good food, and they'll do this, and they'll do that, and they'll get their medications for the next six months. And they've spent, in that whole trip, they've spent you know 10% of what it would be for one month. Correct. And they've got six months of medications, and they had a great time, and they had some good food, and they made the trip down there. They paid for the gas. They paid everything, and they just paid one-tenth for of what one month of their medication would be. So it, it doesn't take you know rocket scientists to figure out why people are going down there for that particular kind of tourism, but the dental's the same way, right? Yeah. The, the, we've talked about the cost of health care across the board, but the cost of dental has skyrocketed too, and- People will go down there and get $20,000 worth of dental work done for a couple thousand bucks. Yeah. So there's there's a couple things that have been occurring that, that have led to this. One is, let's talk about some of the pandemic issues. And we'll talk about some of the things that pre-existed the pandemic. But the pandemic, um, there's an estimate that about 40% of the people in the United States gained weight, but they gained a pretty significant amount. When you average it out, it's probably about 15 pounds per, per U.S. citizen. That, that gained weight during the pandemic because we sat at home a lot and we chewed on food while watching movies or Netflix or whatever. And we right. didn't exercise as much because, you know, gyms were shut down and for some reason and things like that. Anyways, all sorts of crazy stuff. So Americans gained weight during the pandemic. That's not good for healthcare. We were already, um, uh, over, uh, overweight <laughs> yeah. and obese, yeah. uh, in right. the United States as it is. Then uh, there was a lack of physical activity. People didn't go out. People didn't get their vitamin D because they weren't going outside uh, as much. And there was more stress and stress and particularly mental health, which we already have a problem with, particularly among young people. But that increased during the pandemic. Uh, and then people didn't go to see their doctors. They didn't go see primary care as often because they were either afraid to go into a healthcare clinic or the healthcare clinic was restricting people because of the pandemic. So all these issues basically already created kind of a perfect storm. Then we had this, um, the healthcare people are, and you've probably heard this a lot, Harlan, people were sick of healthcare and even doctors and nurses. And so we had a lot of quiet quitting and quite frankly, some loud quitting in healthcare, which has done uh, increased uh, the amount that you have to pay to get healthcare providers. So healthcare wage inflation has gone up significantly and there's less providers than ever before. And there was already a deficit in terms of the number of providers. So we got this perfect storm going on. We had the pandemic, and then we got the obesity problem, which occurred 
prior to the pandemic and it's continuing, which we have a significant number of people in the United States are overweight or obese. We already had significant um, deficits in provider numbers. The ratio of providers per person has gone down, mostly because the United States hasn't been turning out enough doctors and nurses. And we're one of the few Western large developed economies that is actually increasing our population. We have a small repopulation rate, but then immigration has been significant, particularly this last year. Uh, and as I point out, immigrants uh, coming in the, to the United States are more likely to engage in medical travel. And then we also have uh, greater amounts of uh, growth of Hispanics, which have uh, higher uh, amounts of families typically, and they tend to be a little bit younger than the rest of the population. So all this led to more population, less providers, heavier, less healthy people that during the pandemic got worse. We have mental health issues affecting the young people, which have a comorbidity rate about 36% with health problems, which means more health problems and mental health problems. All of this means we have a healthcare demand. Oh, and by the way, millennials and Gen Z are utilizing healthcare at greater rates. Uh, this, this numbers just came out this year than uh than gen x my gen ration and uh the baby boomers before us than we ever did at that age so in other words utilization of healthcare has increased among young people which is actually a good thing normally but it's right now we don't have capacity so all this demand is increasing capacity isn't there and and particularly in places like the the, the border in the Texas border is like I talked about Eagle Pass and other places in Texas, what we call the Rio Grande Valley here in Texas, uh, has almost the entire population of the Rio Grande Valley is equal to the population of San Antonio, which is like the sixth largest city in the United States. So we got another million, million and a half people on the valley um, on the border with Mexico, and there isn't enough doctors in this large rural area, a huge area, very rural. And so uh, it's well known that, for example, doctors that practice in the Rio Grande Valley, they see many more patients than they would if they lived in, say, San Antonio or Dallas or New York or San Francisco. And they actually make a lot of money, too, because they're seeing so many patients. But all these problems are causing um, uh, basically demand capacity issues that aren't going to be fixed anytime soon. And this, if you will, outlet or one of the outlets is going to be people traveling for healthcare, including traveling internationally into places like Mexico and the rest, rest of Latin America. And so, so let me ask you another question that we re had a recent study that showed about 70% of Americans believe or say that the healthcare system has failed them. Yeah. That the United Healthcare System has failed them. Oh, yeah. uh, a, a lot of the reasons for that are things that we hear all the time. I have to wait forever to see a doctor. Uh, when I finally do see a doctor, they seem disengaged. They don't have as much time for me. They're, they're rushing me. Uh, they don't listen to me whenever I talk to them. A lot of this goes right back to what you just said. We have so many people that want to see that doctor, and they have so many people they have to see. Well, I can't see you for six months. I can't see you three months, whatever it is. Get in line, right? Get in line. Right. 
And then, of course, they have the pressures coming at them from insurance companies that are, it's just, that's well documented that they have certain quotas and things that they have to do as well. But how much of an impact is it going to make? And I think this is already happening down in the valley where doctors are stepping away completely and saying, I'm a cash business. I'm, yep. I'm a, either direct primary care, which is membership based, or I'm yep. cash only. I'm not messing with insurance. I ain't got time. I ain't got time to mess with all of that stuff. If you got the money, honey, I got the time. How much yeah. are we seeing of that? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. So absolutely. This is, so that's the great thing about what I study is the, it's not just the international healthcare. It's not just people going abroad for cosmetic surgery. It's things that are happening domestically as well. So for the last about 10, 12 years, about a little less, or a little, almost the same amount of time that I've been studying medical tourism, there's been this, this trend with self-insured employers, which you're, of course, very well familiar with and very right. involved in. And so one of the, the companies that has been most aggressive in this area and has found some amazing things, uh, ways to reduce costs, is Walmart. So what Walmart started doing many years back is they found out, they were looking at some research by LeapFrog, which is this big organization made up of a bunch of companies that looks at the U.S. healthcare system and right. says, how can we fix the U.S. healthcare system? They saw some things in it that were unsustainable and they were making recommendations. One of the things they found was that this idea of centers of excellence, it turns out if you go to uh, like MD Anderson in the great state of Texas, or if you go to the Cleveland Clinic or you go to Mayo or some of these places, they're, they're top ranked hospitals within these systems. And the, the doctors that work there are extraordinarily good at what they do. They're extraordinarily specialized. They see a lot of cases. So they see large numbers of people. So think about like an athlete that happens to get lots of hours of practice in. In healthcare, you have a similar type of interaction. Whereas if a physician, a surgeon, for example, does a lot of surgeries, they get better at it. And they also get more efficient at it. And so what happens is they have less bad things happen, outcomes, right. bad outcomes. Right. Uh, they Because they have developed a specialized process, they reduce the number of infections. So they have less HAAs, HAIs, excuse me. Um, they have less adverse impact or less adverse events. Um, all these good things happen. And also because they're specialized, if you're a young surgeon and you want to learn from the best surgeon in the world, you're willing to take less money to go work at a place like the Mayo Clinic with some of the best doctors and surgeons in the world. And so therefore their cost of, of personnel is actually reasonable for being this really well-known place. So what happens is you, the centers of excellence become these places that are what the Harvard business school calls um, focus factories. Also, interestingly, they're also friendly factories and that they tend to give a higher overall uh, patient experience. So Walmart starts saying, you know, what if we take specific procedures and we were to carve them out of our insurance plan? In this case, they're self-insured where they pay for the, themselves. And we were to go to the Mayo Clinic. You're probably familiar, Harlan. We actually have 
two different procedures that Walmart actually sends people for in San Antonio to Northeast Baptist. Northeast Baptist and the, the providers there have developed such an expertise that they've been listed in Becker's Healthcare for several times as being one of the places that Walmart sends their employees. So employees from all over the United States travel to San Antonio, Texas. They'll stay in a hotel. Walmart pays for the travel. Walmart pays for the hotel. Walmart doesn't charge co-pays. They don't charge deductibles. They don't do anything. The people um, get this procedure done. Walmart's paying a per diem while they're staying there. And they also pay for a loved one to travel with them. And when they come back, because the outcomes are better, because they've negotiated a volume price with the doctors and the hospital, let's say Northeast Baptist or the Mayo Clinic or wherever, they actually save quite a bit. And there is a, is a consulting firm that released some of the numbers when they did this analysis for Walmart. And they can save upwards of, say, $70,000 just by negotiating a procedure for one employee to go to the centers of excellence. So that started off this kind of domestic medical tourism by employers. So employers are now doing this. And in fact, if you look at uh, the most recent survey, the 2022 survey of what uh, self-insured employers are doing, most of them plan on at some point in time having a narrow network, a bundled contract, as they call it, or a center of excellence strategy where they're going to send their employees for specific procedures to specific places, and they're going to negotiate a rate. This is very similar to what Harlan just told you about, which is the idea of uh, either concierge medicine or also called DPCs, which is negotiated cash rates. Uh, but this is more on the consumer side. So if you don't work for Walmart, if you did, it's great because you're making $15 an hour, you get sick, Walmart will send you to the greatest specialist in the world. <laughs> What can you do as an individual? Well, if you're an individual, rather than use your health insurance, which is quite frankly a bad way, as, as Harlan pointed out, to kind of access health care most of the time, because, for example, if you have a $5,000 deductible, um, you're, you're essentially, you're, you're uninsured, if you will, you're functionally uninsured because you have to pay up to $5,000 for a procedure that may not cost $5,000 if you paid for it in cash. So for those things, there's this new idea of this direct primary care DPC practice. Also, uh, you'll hear it called concierge medicine. And some of these people are offering things like a monthly prescription, a monthly subscription monthly, right, that you can pay right. that to get access to healthcare. All you can eat healthcare for right. a subscription model. We even have here in South Texas, we're very fortunate to have these really smart people that have come up with a, a healthcare app that essentially does the same thing called Lasso. Lasso, um, yep. Lasso Healthcare started by a local uh, physician uh, that is doing that from a technology standpoint, focused on both individuals and companies. And all these models are around exactly what you talked about, Harlan, which is why not get back to a cash price? If you have a negotiated cash price, 
then what you can do is you can access this. The, the physician doesn't have to go through billing, which costs a lot of money and dealing with the healthcare companies or even worse, dealing with the government for Medicare or Medicaid or uh, TRICARE types of payments it is extremely cumbersome and very expensive to recover that money. So your accounts payable go your expenses go way up, which means that the money you're bringing in is less worth it. It's less profitable. So many people are going to these cash basis models. And this means that you have choices other than what you would call big medicine and big insurance and all those things. And, and that's, what's great that's happening right now. So Despite the fact that you're going to hear a lot of negatives about healthcare in the United States, there are some wonderful things that are going on. And people like Harlan got his finger on the pulse of that because they're seeing some of these wonderful models that are developing all over the country. I'm well, sorry, and, that was you know, long. that's that's the great thing about the United States, right? We see a problem. Smart people say, you know what? If this is going to be the way it is, let's do something about it. And it's not always an immediate fix. Sometimes it takes time. But when we see that the issue with our healthcare system is is not the actual healthcare, but the access to the healthcare, the administration of the healthcare, the complexity of of getting to that healthcare, then people say, you know what? Well, let's get those middlemen out. What's the problem? The problem is this. The problem is you to get to see that doctor, you got to go through this this call to check if they're in this network to the, and then you then you get dictated how when you can see them, how you can see them and how much you're going to pay for them. What if we get that out of the way and say, "Hey doc, would you like to see this person face to face?" and they pay you a monthly fee and then they come see you as much as they want to? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and now I'm not fun. beholden to anyone. Now I get to practice medicine. Now I get to do what I love to do and what I got in, what I, what I got, went to school for all those years to do to begin with. I wanted to become a doctor to help people. Now I'm actually helping people again. Yep. And um, people are making these choices. And what's great is this allows, making those choices. Yeah. The, the, these allows consumers to have options. They now have options. I can go to Mexico to see a provider. I can yep. go to another city and see a provider that has a different model. Um, so uh, the Oklahoma Surgery Center, which is a yeah. well-known cash price basis uh, business, very famous model here in the United States. Again, just this week, just posted on LinkedIn, how 40% of their total patients come from outside of Oklahoma. So this yep. place in Oklahoma that hardly anybody knows of, unless you're familiar with kind of these free market healthcare principles, 40%, almost 50% of their total patients are flying to Oklahoma to get access to cash-based surgical procedures because they're greatly discounted. And many times they're less than your deductible. Even if you have something like um, the you know uh, healthcare uh, program through the PPACA or what's called Obamacare, um, the it, in those cases, and some people actually have so high of a deductible, it's better to pay in cash. And and we find that when people are traveling to Mexico, for example, they say, yeah, I may have health insurance, you know, but I only use it if I have cancer. I'm not going to use it for dental. I'm not going to use it for uh, a 
uh, imaging. I'm not going to use it for my pharmaceuticals. I'm not going to use it for all these things because my deductible is so high. I'd be paying cash anyways. So I might as well get a, a discounted rate on what I'm paying for instead of paying all the way up to my deductible. So it, it's really, a, there's a lot of positives. The old school during the um, the Clinton administration, there was going to be the head of the um, Health and Human Services was going to be a senator from the Dakotas. I forgot if it was North or South Dakota. Tom Daschle, as I recall, he didn't become head of uh, Department of Health and Human Services because he had some tax issues. I don't think he'd been paying his taxes. <laughs> um, and so he was a Democrat and he, he had certain views about healthcare, but he had a, this wonderful description of healthcare in the United States, which I think is still relevant today. He called it, he said, healthcare in the United States is islands of excellence in a sea of mediocrity. And that still exists to some extent today. Not all the healthcare facilities are excellent. Not all the providers are excellent. But when it comes to excellence, we do have excellence. And to answer one of your earlier questions, Harlan, it, when it comes to people traveling, more people travel into the United States than most people realize. The United States is a destination from healthcare. Uh, and in fact, uh, it would be a really good business overall in terms of a balance of trade, except for the fact that we have millions of people in the United States that travel into places like Mexico. So overall numbers, there's less people that come into the United States than leave the United out. States. Yeah. But um, interestingly, and when they come, they're typically spending 10 or $20,000. When people leave the United States to go to Mexico, they're paying thousands of dollars. So um, overall balance of trade, it kind of works its way out, but it's, uh, it's this wonderful, if you will, free market trend that's happening in healthcare. And it has been happening for a long time. It, it really has. And, uh, you know, Dr. Keith Smith from the surgery center of Oklahoma was actually on the show last week. And, and Fantastic one of the, person. It, he is a great guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're members of the free market medical association, uh, love him and Jay Kempton putting that together. They were both on the show last week. And I asked him, you know, what was the big thing that happened when you started publishing your prices online in 2009? And he said, well, the Canadians came. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting because that is what got them through. They didn't know if it was going to work. They had this great concept that we're going to do this and we think it should work, but we're not sure it's going to work. But the people that came from Canada, and it, I mean, there was others too. Uh, they came from the UK. They came from other places with socialized medicine because they didn't want to wait in line. But the folks from Canada, originally, they made up well more than 50% of the uh, folks that were getting stuff done. I'm not uh, surprised. Because that's what kept them going. Yeah. Uh, so and so when they still have a great number that come today. We have them here too at uh, Texas uh, Medical Management, uh, th that group of Sean Kelly's group. A, a lot, lot of people, they have a lot coming in. But you're right. It's very interesting. When people come to the United States, they're going to centers of excellence and they're going to places with great value and, and listed prices. When people leave the United States, they're going because it's cheaper. <laughs> 
So it's a little bit true. So actually, there's an interesting, um, there was a book written by uh, Dr. Michael Porter, who's a very famous Harvard uh, Business School professor. He wrote a book uh, during uh, around the same time we were having the passage of the PPACA or Obamacare. um, And we were having this uh, national debate about healthcare. And he said, we need to stop having these artificial distinctions between quality and cost. He said in consumers' minds, they don't think about it as those two separate things. He said, he, and this is not his analogy, but this is mine, but he said, basically what happens is think about buying a car. If I'm going to purchase a car, but it doesn't have an engine or it doesn't have a steering wheel, or if it doesn't have tires, it's no good. It doesn't help me get to work. So therefore, even if it's the cheapest car, I'm not purchasing it because it doesn't have the ability to get me what I need. So what we look for in healthcare is the combination of quality, a certain level of quality that I'm, that I'm willing to accept and cost combined. So he called it value. And he was the one that came up with the value-based healthcare model, which by the way, is sweeping the world right now. It's one of the fastest growing healthcare models. And quite frankly, there's going to be some amazing things that are going to come out of value-based healthcare in the future. Lasso has a a value-based healthcare model that they're going to be releasing. And there's all these different organizations that are practicing or, or researching or experimenting with this value-based health model. And that's the idea of, and that's essentially what Walmart did, right? When Walmart said, where right. are we, where should we go to send the employees where they're going to get this really good thing? And by the way, so people are going back to that Walmart model that I talked about where domestic travel, the reason Walmart does this and people that hate capitalism or think that employers don't care about their employees, this is why Walmart did it. They found out that employees that they treated really well, took care of all their healthcare costs, sent them to a center of excellence. So $15 an hour cashier at some Walmart in Idaho that travels to this world-class surgeon to one of the best places on the planet to get a healthcare procedure. They got a better procedure because they got a better procedure, very quality value, right? Walmart got it at a bargain and it was quality. So it was value they would come back to work. They would be able to get back to being productive quicker because they had a better procedure and they had less readmission rates and lower infection rates and all these things. And so they actually, they were showing caring to their employees and their employees because they got them the best healthcare they could were much more productive and much more, uh, if you will, motivated employees. Um, so it, it's a really a good sign. But yeah, all this is a is a, a really good indication that I think that there's some things going on in healthcare that are positive. Again, as Dr. Porter pointed out, it's about values. So interestingly, in Mexico, when people travel to Mexico, again, not well known, but for the past 10 years, uh, Mexican federal government invested in the Joint Commission standards, which are here in the United States, the standards that are that used to evaluate hospitals in the U.S., and they're using it in Mexico, which has 
arguably increased the overall quality in Mexican healthcare over the years. So therefore, the people that are traveling to Mexico are traveling not just quite frankly for the price, but because they perceive that there's a higher level of quality. And, and again, competition is good. If there's higher levels of quality in Mexico, that's going to, for a lower price, that's going to make it so American providers and hospitals are going to have to take notice because they're going to see millions of people leaving the United States. And they're going to respond, uh, hopefully not by getting politicians to enact more laws, but hopefully by raising the quality of their care and providing, finding ways to reduce cost and to give better quality, more value to patients. And that, that's, it's going to be, I think, a, a positive revolution in healthcare over time, because again, you and I, Harlan, are going to be the beneficiaries because we're going to get better healthcare in the United States at hopefully lower cost as these things take hold. The one thing that I'm, I think the biggest, we talk about the quality, we talk about the value there, but one of the biggest issues is how do you determine that? How does the lay person determine that? And that's why I believe many people are shopping via price because they don't know the difference. My friend went down there and they everything went great, so it must be good quality. Well, my brother went to this hospital and didn't die, so I guess it's good quality. Well, you know what? But then I looked on Leapfrog and it appears that that hospital got an F for for consumer. Yeah. Well, who told you to look at Leapfrog? I don't know. This crazy guy I was listening to his podcast and he talked about something about Leapfrog and hospitals getting Fs or, or I was at this chamber meeting one time. And this guy was up on stage and he said, did you know that 10 miles from where we're standing right now, there's a hospital that two consecutive quarters got an F for, for, for client uh, safety or for patient safety. Would you like to know which one that is? And then he told me, I was like, oh my gosh, mom's in there right now. Yeah. Because how do I know? Well, how, oh. how do I look at that? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I looked on my blue cross or my Aetna or my Humana. When I looked in the network, it didn't yeah. tell me this hospital was an F or an A or a B. It just said they're in network. So they must be good, David. Yeah. That's not cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So there, you've got so much there. We got so much to unpack in that, but that is such a great question and such a good point. And uh, your, your listeners are going to forever be thankful for you for bringing up this point. So let's, let's get into a couple of things. Uh, the insurance companies, again, I've, I've been insured by insurance companies for a long time and I've had good and bad experiences with them, but we have to be honest that they are and increasingly using artificial intelligence, by the way, according to a couple of articles we've seen to right. use like narrow networks to basically funnel people to uh, both physicians and facilities where they tend to increase their overall profitability. So they've, they've actually found ways to do that. In other words, the idea that if they can send you to a physician that is a little bit more test heavy and says, let's do this test and this test and this test, and they charge a little bit more than that physician, which by the way, might be good for you, but it also might be unnecessary. But the point is, if they charge a little bit more, that actually might make it so the, the healthcare, uh, the the insurance company can make some more and then go back to the employer and say, Hey, by the way, look at how much more 
these physicians charge for these employees. So therefore we have to raise your prices and we're going to have to make more money and all those things factor in. So the (laughs) the insurance is like, like Las Vegas, the casinos never lose insurance companies rarely lose. So the insurance companies are going to do whatever they have to do in order to maximize the return. They have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders as well. So I get it. But so we can't necessarily say it just because it's in my network, it's quality. Maybe uh, the, the insurance companies don't want to get sued. The doctors don't want to get sued. So there, there's that. But there's more to it. So how do we determine what quality is? Well, looking on the internet, multiple studies, this is the academic portion of the, the, the present, uh, this presentation to you today, which is um, this multiple studies have looked at the internet have shown that there's about a, a 33, 33, 33 rule, uh, about a third, a third, a third, which is about a third of the information that's available on the internet is unfortunately out of date. So it was posted out there in 2019, evidence-based medicine has changed since then. It's not accurate anymore. Another third of the information is, uh, is not, uh, Uh, accurate. So it's actually, um, it's incorrect. And because of that, then unfortunately, uh, the, uh, uh, you can't use it as well. And then the other third of the information is accurate and up to date. So unfortunately, what happens is we end up with a situation where about a third of the information that you're looking at on the internet is not uh, is it's good for you the rest of it 66 percent is not so that's that's unfortunate and by the way 70 percent of all people that travel for healthcare, whether internationally or domestically typically use the internet for access to information so here's another academic piece this is fascinating so if you've got some gray hair like i do and harlan i'm starting to detect a little bit on uh, the beard so you're going to remember a time when ratings were something that we, they were out there, but maybe we have a healthy skepticism for. <clears throat> There's been several studies now that the millennial generation and Gen Z um, believe in ratings more than they believe in advice that we're, would be given to them from friends and family. So a millennial will will see something on the internet, ratings by 500 people that they've never heard of before wouldn't know they could be half a world away and they're rating a restaurant and they say it's really good and they'll go wow it must be good but if their mother says oh that's not a good restaurant they go yeah whatever it's my mother i don't why would i trust her (laughs) so i find this really fascinating but anyway so these this crowdsourcing if you will of information about healthcare has become incredibly important. And among young people, it's actually preferred more than ratings by friends and family. Uh, so we have this crowdsourcing phenomenon, and this is taking hold in healthcare, uh, both for doctors and other providers and facilities. So it's, it's, it's very common. But anyways, so we have, we have these sources of perhaps not perfect information, but yet, probably about 70% of people are using these sources for choices in healthcare, and that doesn't seem to be going away. Now, do we have more information than ever before? Yes, uh, under the Trump administration uh, and continued in the Biden administration, we're looking at more transparency for pricing 
for hospitals domestically. That's good. By the way, this already existed in medical tourism. When you looked at any place around the world, say India, right. Thailand, Germany, Turkey, Mexico, Dominican Republic, Colombia, all these places have had for a long time their bundled cost which they would display on the website for international medical travelers, just like the Oklahoma Surgery Center did, which got the Canadians down. So uh, there's more transparency on that. We're finding more information that's coming out about, uh, if you will, efficacy rates. Um, for example, five and 10 year survival rates on cancer. Uh, we're looking at uh, more information coming out, both from the federal government, as well as individual facilities and organizations like Leapfrog Group that are providing information about uh, hospital-acquired infections. So all of this information is getting better, but oh my gosh, it is a bear. And the average person searching for information, they're, they're going to find either that there's not the specific information that they want, or there's, there's so much information that going through it is extremely difficult. Fortunately, there has been some technology companies and entrepreneurs and uh, businesses that are trying to help guide consumers through some of that. And so that hopefully will make it better for everyone in the United States. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, one of the things that we focus on when we're building health plans is we want at least one option on there. Usually that's all they'll let us do. I mean, if we, if we could, we would only have that one option. And that is the one where you have a nurse navigator or you have some type of concierge team that's helping guide you down that pathway to a quality physician. Uh, because at the end of the day, even if it's more expensive, having that quality physician, having that quality facility yeah. means that there's less chances of you being readmitted less chances of any type of infections, like you're saying, less chances of those things. So wouldn't it make more sense to pay a little bit more? And, and, and usually it's not. That's that's the, the crazy thing, right? Because there's there's not always that correlation with better, yeah. doesn't always mean higher cost. But even if it does cost a little bit more, isn't it better off paying that than paying the, the lesser price for the lesser facility and lesser doctor with the more likelihood of having the same surgery or something similar over again, readmittances for whatever, because now you got MRSA or now you got staff or now you got whatever. Or we've all heard the horror stories of someone leaving the hospital worse off than they came in because yeah. they caught something at the hospital that yeah. put them in a worse situation. So that's what we really look to avoid when we build these plans for uh, for these companies. And what you see, first of all, and, and usually it's that first year, especially if they're coming off fully insured into the self and level funded world, is you don't have a lot of people go down that path. They want yeah. that. I want me a network because I feel better there. Yeah. Why? Why do you feel better? Because I get to make my own choices based on what? What information are you using? You're using information that you've got on the Internet. 33% of which, which you just said is completely wrong. So more of it that's outdated. Well, this hospital was really high rated in 2008. <laughs> what about right now? I can't find anything. Hmm. Is that hospital still open? <laughs> yeah. You know, what, whatever is going on there. But it, it's interesting to me that there was another study earlier this year, and I wish I could remember the exactly, but they, they, they looked at, over 100,000 people that got their health care from their employer. Yeah. And those individuals said that the their 
experience or their happiness with their health care was going to be directly corresponded to who their health insurance provider was. So mm-hmm. how happy I am with my health care will depend on my health insurance provider. Those same exact people, 62% said they could not trust their health insurance company to find them a doctor. Wait a second. You just told me your happiness is going to depend on who your insurance company is, but then 62% said you can't even, I don't even trust them to help me find a doctor. Yeah. There's problem there. But then those same people don't want to be guided, right? David, yeah. they don't want to be guided. They don't want you to help them find a good quality doctor at a good, good, you know, the right care at the right time at the right price. They don't want you to help them do that. They want to do it on their own or look at the network. But I can't even trust my doctor to buy uh, insurance company to find me a doctor. It's so convoluted because we've made it so complex. Yeah. And we've blurred that line between health insurance and health care so much that people think they're the same thing. I know. And that's the, uh, it's just the most unfortunate thing. And that's why I love these, uh, the programs like Lasso, uh, self-insured uh, models, DPC models, medical tourism, where people are cutting through, they're slashing through the regulatory schemes. They're slashing through the bureaucratic uh, nature of healthcare. They're slashing through the, this idea of having middlemen or, you know, administrative uh, people making these decisions for you and trying to find ways to to get health care that makes sense for themselves and for their employees. And so I love it. Uh, uh, my, my university a few years back became self-insured. We're not a large employer by any stretch of the imagination. We're not nearly as big as a Walmart or uh, you know an HEB or somebody like that. We're just a tiny little employer, but we became self-insured because it gave us choices. And then we could use that to select various different benefit providers and various different programs um, to help reduce our healthcare cost. And uh, you'd be surprised. There's some really fascinating, uh, many people in your, that are listening now are really interested in things like holistic medicine or food yes. is medicine. There's companies that have found that, for example, if you just leave out fresh bananas and fresh apples and things of that nature for the employees. Did you know that uh, bananas contain large amounts of potassium? Potassium, for example, helps reduce cardiac uh, issues. So, you know, being able to provide your employees fresh, healthy foods that they would eat instead of going to the vending machine and getting uh, a candy bar, which is going to have way too many calories and way too many chemicals and and too much sodium and all those things in it that you don't need, uh, that that could help. And, and employers can start to do those things because they care about their employees. They want them to be happy and healthy because if they're happy and healthy, they're going to be more productive. So the, all these things are, I think, slashing through the red tape. And as you're pointing out, and it's a positive. And, and believe me, if Harlan and I could tell you, for many years, a lot of these things, including self-insurance, were relatively fringe, whereas now they're not. And DPC practices, this is a relatively new trend in the United States, although the idea of a, a doctor that you paid on a cash basis is not what's right. old is new again. But the idea of the DPC practice in its modern equivalent is relatively new. And all these things are good for healthcare. 
medical tourism, same thing. Did people travel for healthcare? Yeah, people traveled for healthcare back during Egyptian times. Uh, but the new equivalent driven primarily by the internet is is helping. It's making things better. Well, and, and I, I think there's a misconception here that I, I want to make sure people don't believe that when we talk about medical tourism, we're not saying that you've got to go to Singapore, that you've got to even go to Mexico. Medical tourism can happen within these here United States. Uh, you, medical tourism is I decide I live here in San Antonio and I decide I'm going to go see Dr. Keith Smith up in Oklahoma City. I've just left my local area. I've just went. I've traveled for healthcare. So medical tourism can take on many different looks. And one of the biggest places we're seeing it happen right now is because it must happen. And that is yes. in rural America. You touched on some of that down we have here, here in the Valley in Texas, but it's happening all across the country where doctors have left rural areas. Uh, many yeah. times it we saw a lot of it about 8% of primary care doctors left the whole thing, got out of the business during uh, COVID. But the vast majority of those were actually in rural areas. Many of them didn't stop practicing. They may have moved to a big city. And it's not uncommon to see rural areas where people have to travel two, two and a half hours just to see a doctor. So yeah. you can imagine what it looks like if they have to have something more serious. So medical tourism has become a must for some people in this country, talk a little bit about that because there's some studies that's been released some, and it's becoming more and more a must for some yeah, folks. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad you highlighted this uh, because it is, it's one of the, the, the hidden areas of healthcare right now that if you live in a large city, you're not as aware of what's going on, although your travel time, even in a large city, and your wait time has probably increased uh, since the pandemic because of the demand capacity thing we talked about earlier. But uh, yes, yeah, so the, one of the most recent studies that went on that looked at uh, the travel experience that rural Americans are facing, uh, it's gone up significantly. Statistics have shown that it's gone up significantly um, since uh, 2001 to 2007. And this has been made much worse after the pandemic, as many of you have heard, or definitely those in the healthcare industry know, is what's happening is hospitals all around the country, particularly in rural areas, are suffering from financial difficulties and going into bankruptcy. Some of them are being purchased by the large systems, and the large systems aren't necessarily keeping a full, say, hospital in these rural areas because it's not profitable. And so they're moving those out. So we're seeing a lack of providers. As you pointed out, they're moving to, uh, to urban areas. We've seen the lack of beds because uh, they're going uh, they're going out of these rural areas. Um, a, a study that was done by New America actually showed that the most significant uh, issue in rural America is actually neonatal care, uh, neonatal and in the ICU uh, uh, space uh, beds uh, has decreased significantly. And that's what people are having to travel for. So the whole pediatric area, also OBGYN care has been significantly impacted. Um, also, because they are having to travel uh, farther, as you pointed out, right? Let's say you had to travel, you know, miles or hours to, to get where you're going, that's increased the cost of care because again, 
Um, you know, unfortunately, under the Biden administration, we've seen a lot of inflation and we've particularly seen a lot of increase in energy prices. So that has increased your cost for traveling uh, for the care, which means it's increased your total cost of care. Now, interesting, this is a study, um, I think I just sent it out to you if you want to post it for your listeners as well. This is uh, something that we thought might happen, but we didn't have good numbers until, uh, until just recently, that we have actually seen that because of these problems in rural America, we saw inpatient mortality rates in rural areas increase 8.7% wow. versus urban areas. So meaning that because people in rural areas have less access, they have to travel farther, they have less access to specialists, um, perhaps the best and the brightest are going to urban areas rather than staying in rural areas. So the, the care that is left over is not as high a quality. So basically people in rural America right now are suffering and they are having to travel for care to e either, again, uh, another city, another county, another state, or potentially even to go out of the country. And, and this is a, another problem that's happening in the United States. And again, why did this happen? Well, I mean, we could point to a lot of different issues. Um, the government has done us no favors. Um, during the pandemic, uh, obviously, that hurt a lot of uh, rural hospitals. And the only thing really keeping them going were these payments that they were getting from the federal government, which have now been exhausted. Um, the, the cost, the inflation costs, uh, not only uh, wage inflation, but inflation of supply chain cost have made running these hospitals uh, less cost effective. So there's lots of issues going on. Um, one of the things that's helping, there's a positive and only one that I can really think of is telemedicine. Uh, telemedicine, again, which uh, during the pandemic under the Trump administration and extended under the Biden administration has been more friendly towards telemedicine. And so people are in these rural areas are getting access to telemedicine at greater rates than ever before. But in some of these areas, even broad broadband is a little bit more difficult, a little bit more expensive. And so that even makes it... Um, more difficult to get access to telemedicine. But yeah, overall, that that's an area that we, we really don't have a good sense of how to fix it or how to make it better. And here in Texas, where we have a lot of rural areas, a lot of rural counties. So that's, that's something that we're going to have to work on. And again, my hope is that uh, when we apply some of these free market principles to this, we're going to find ways to do it. And it's going to be a combination of technology and processes and really dedicated and passionate people that are going to come up with these solutions that are going to help people in these rural areas. Yeah, and I agree with you. Uh, you know, that's another thing that Walmart Health, they're, they're, one of their things that they've done, Walmart Health has virtual medicine, and uh, yeah. they even offer a virtual direct primary care. I don't know if right. you knew about that, David, which is yep. very cool because you get to see the same doctor. Yep. And that's a very cool thing. I mean, they they do the urgent care thing. We, we actually use them with Eagle Care, is who, uh, that's who our provider is, is, is Walmart Health. But that's one of the things that attracted us to them is because – 
that is outside of what most people think you're going to get with telemedicine. They think it's going to be luck of the draw or I'm getting some doctor on his break or something. You know, he's probably eating a donut and smoking a cigarette saying, yeah, you probably ought to cut off the smoking and cigarette, buddy. You know, and uh, but no, you're getting to see the same doctor. You get the same type of, uh, you know, that you would if it was in person. And that's huge for those folks in rural areas. Uh, because they can still order blood work. They can still do those things, but you're now getting that experience with your, your records being in one place, that doctor getting to know you, uh, you, you just don't, you may not have a direct primary care doctor accessible to you within hours of where you live. So I think that's very, uh, that's a, that's a good viable thing for many folks in the rural area. But I don't know if this is even something that's out there, but you guys do all this research on, on all the different ways that you can access healthcare in a, in a different way. Right. So here you are, you're going to be able to uh, do some tourism as it were, regardless of where, how far that tourism, whether you're tourism, Oklahoma city, or your, or your tourism, Mexico, or your tourism, Singapore, or wherever that is. Is there a clearinghouse place? Is there some place you can go to even learn where these things are to get an idea. I, I truly have no idea. How would you even do that? I'm I'm terrified to go to the internet because you told me only 33% of it's even right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, unfortunately, when it comes to a clearinghouse, there's several of them out there. There's websites. There are uh, people that have jobs that are called brokers or sometimes facilitators in medical tourism that provide um, if you will, advice. But again, many of these brokers may not have any healthcare or medical experience. Uh, sometimes they've just conducted interviews with doctors and hospitals um, over the telephone or over a Zoom call, but haven't actually been there. There's all sorts of possibilities. So facilitators are kind of an answer, but it's for many Americans. We don't use that. Uh, it's more uh, prevalent in places like Europe and Asia where they use these facilitators. Here in the United States, it's people our age remember when there was things called travel agents. There's not many of those anymore. Most people don't book uh, their travel or even a hotel. I mean, we go to Airbnb or we go to Travelocity or we go to Southwest.com to, to book a flight. So we don't use travel agents anymore. But so facilitators have a very incremental small market share here in the United States uh, because quite frankly, there's, there's so much information out there that you kind of shop yourself. And most people feel like doing that. Uh, but there is perhaps a role for a little bit of this kind of third party to help. And there's also these uh, sites. Um, for example, uh, some of the research we did on medical tourism when it came to cosmetic surgery, we looked at a, a third party rating site. And by the way, many third party rating sites like Yelp actually has listing of doctors. I don't know if you know that you can go to Yelp and see listing of physicians in your area or outside your area. So we went to a website called realself.com, which has women that are uh, doing like mommy makeovers. They have a mommy makeover site. And then on that, they have women that have told their story about where they went how much they paid, the experience that they had, what procedures they, all that. And sometimes they follow up, you know, months later and say, this is how it 
feels, looks, whatever, three months later. But you can go to these sites and find uh, kind of like an ANSI's list, if you will, of uh, of doctors and providers, both in the United States as well as abroad. But is there one clearinghouse or one place that you could trust? Uh, again, the, unfortunately, the answer is no. It's kind of free markets are typically messy and and that's what <laughs> this is and, and medical tourism is extraordinarily messy i was described in a recent article um by cnbc is is saying medical tourism is what we call in the united states wild wild west when it comes to healthcare, and, and there's truly something to that there it, it it's very unregulated. There's not a lot of rules. It just kind of, you, you decide where you're going to go based on what you think is best for you and, and the research that you've done. And unfortunately there isn't a place. Now there are really smart entrepreneurial people that are helping to develop those things. Uh, there's people like yourself. Uh, you're probably familiar with a gentleman, Armando Polanco, that's in San Antonio. He's developed a, a, a package for businesses that are trying to get pharmaceuticals from either Mexico or Canada, where they can, the employers can just work with him and get a package so their employees can then get these uh, pharmaceuticals, as you pointed out earlier, that are you know, 10% of the price that they would pay in the United States. Um, there's, there's companies that have listings of these centers of excellence and they capture, uh, data through these third party kind of surveys that they do of health outcomes and efficacy rates and all, all these things. And then they provide that to these large companies so that they can make decisions about where to send employees for what types of procedures and how much they may save over a period of time. So there is some of this going on, but right now, is there a place Unfortunately, it's using Google or or Bing and Chat GPT to uh, to ask <laughs> questions, and and it's mostly going to pull from existing information, which is on the internet. Which, as we heard, only about thirty three percent is probably completely accurate and up to date. So, so one of the things that uh, you you kind of mentioned in passing there, but I want to bring up, and this is this is one of the the potential negatives is that depending on where you choose to go, if you choose to go outside of the United States, you may not have any recourse mm. if something goes wrong. That's correct. And and I think that is something that obviously could make someone think twice about that. Yep. Right? You you may have all of this great data that see that you can see this place is a center for excellence. This doctor has a uh, 99.7% success rate. But what happens if you're that 3% and you're in this foreign country and mm. you have no rights there? What happens then? So there, there, some of the countries are trying to address this by coming up with programs. For example, a country that I've consulted with in the past, uh, the country of Korea, um, ha came up with the idea of this arbitration policy, whereas any foreign medical tourist that goes to Korea and doesn't get 
what they think is value quality. They didn't get what they wanted. They had problems or issues. They can basically go on their website, call an 800 number or, you know, ask for support or help off the internet and they'll get uh, a guaranteed arbitration where you have a third party neutral arbitrator that will work between you and the facility to try and figure something out. So Korea tried to address that. They tried to say, hey, if you come to Korea, we guarantee that we'll do good. And if we don't do good, we're guaranteed that you'll be able to at least talk to somebody that can try to negotiate some type of settlement. Most places you go around the world, um, here, here's the, the truth. The truth is you're most likely not going to be able to sue the hospital or doctor for damages because it's outside of the, the jurisdiction of the U.S. legal system. Um, you're most likely uh, going to have less support because there's something called the continuum of care and healthcare. And once you kind of leave a foreign country, even though you may have access to talk to that doctor by phone or by Zoom, it's very common when you go to India, for example, doctors will give you their cell phone. So you may actually have that doctor's cell phone and be able to call them 24 hours a day. But is that the type of support you need if you have an actual physical issue? It may not be. So there's all sorts of issues regarding that. And the continuum of care is a problem. Now, here's another problem. So the AMA actually addressed this on their website. They actually have a document out there that was kind of guidance to doctors and suggested that some doctors may feel uncomfortable with treating people that have come into the country uh, from getting a healthcare procedure abroad. And there are some doctors that may decide to turn down treatment and again, suggest you go talk to somebody else. One of the reasons for that appears to be, uh, according to a colleague of mine, who's uh, a Harvard Law School professor, uh, Glenn Cohen, who's written on this. And what he found was that although you can't sue an international provider easily, um, yeah, in fact, it may not be possible at all. It It is more likely that if you were to engage a lawyer in the United States, what they would do is they would look very carefully at the type of care that you got when you came back into the United States, simply because they don't have anybody else to sue. They can't sue the doctor in Mexico. They can't sue the doctor in Turkey, but they can sue the doctor in the United States that saw you afterwards. So if that doctor made any mistakes whatsoever, uh, didn't follow the protocols exactly 100% the way they should, then that doctor is more liable for a lawsuit. If you suffered a problem overseas, came back into the United States, presented with that problem to a doctor in the United States. Now, there is a short story, but I'll try to get to the point very quickly. There has been precedence, if you will, legally to be able to sue international people. Um, it, it, those in, that are older, like myself, have some gray hairs. Remember the Lockerbie bombing, uh, which was apparently done by some agents of Muammar Gaddafi, the dictator of Libya at the time. Um, in that case, a, uh, the federal government and a judge in the United States allowed the, uh, the victims of that bombing. There was a plane that was bombed and the people died. The victims in the United States 
act uh, asked to seek restitution or damages against Libya. A judge agreed with them. The U.S. federal government agreed with them. And then what they did is they allowed for countries that had extradition treaties to be able to seize property like bank accounts or yachts that were owned by Muammar Gaddafi in places like France. They would seize his yacht, they would liquidate it, and they would take the money and send it back to the U.S. as compensation to the victims that had suffered the loss of these family members. So that is a rare precedence that has occurred in the past that could potentially occur in the future where somebody, uh, for example, that was working with the Mexican doctor, they had an outcome that they didn't believe was appropriate. They come back to the United States. They were to sue and that Mexican doctor had a house in the United States. They had a yacht that was parked off of San Diego, something of that nature. Well, that judge could actually um, uh, get the police to go seize the yacht, liquidate it, and then uh, be able to potentially give that money to the uh, the patient that had suffered damages. So it's possible but it would be unlikely to happen. Yeah. And you probably would have to have pretty deep pockets to ever get down that far in the pathway. Probably. The common guy like us, it's very unlikely we would ever even get down that. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of those uh, in that case, like the damned, if you do damned, if you don't, right. Um, you're, you're just in that situation. And it, it was, I wasn't trying to bring a negativity on this. I wanted to bring a reality to it because this is something that, if you need to know all the facts. If you elect to go down this pathway, you're going to have an issue if you do the medical tourism out, out of the United States that's correct. different than if you do the medical tourism within the United States. That and remember, correct. we're talking about both kinds here. And that, that doesn't mean it's not a good fit for you. It means that you need to look at all of those things. Like I applaud Korea for that, even doing the arbitration uh, situation, because that, that would make me feel more comfortable if I was going to look at them as a potential uh, place to go and have something done. Yeah. Fascinating. From a business professor standpoint, I don't know if you remember the point at which the Korean cars like Hyundai and Kia uh, gained market share in the United States. Uh, for those of us, again, a little bit older, we remember that Japanese cars and German cars and you know these cars that were considered high quality like Toyota um, had all this market share. Well, uh, uh, Korean cars crept into the market and they stole market share by the use of a strategy, which is quality, which they, they guaranteed all their cars for 100,000 miles. They had these kind of uh, long-term warranties, which the other car companies weren't willing to do because their, their actuarial tables showed that, yeah, well, at 100,000 miles, there's going to be repairs and other things that are going to happen to a number of these cars. So therefore, it's not financially worth it to us. Well, Hyundai and Korea did that. And because they did these 100,000 almost lifetime warranty uh, for their cars, they crept and got more and more market share. And now they have a fairly decent market share in the United States. And they did that through quality. So I guess the Korean healthcare system 
And uh, the private hospitals must have thought, well, let's do the same thing. And let's basically assure people like yourself and Americans that if you come here, you're going to get really good quality health care and we stand behind it. We'll we'll give you a fair hearing in case yeah. you, you do get something that um, yeah. you don't think was appropriate. Right. Here's here's your warranty, as it were. Here, the same kind of thing. Here, here's your warranty. You know, we yep. we feel very confident you're going to be a hundred percent happy. Yep. But if you're not, and, you know, it's like the old discount tire commercial with the lady throwing the tire through the window, right? If you ever did, yeah, you know, bring it back. There it goes. Well, yep. same kind of thing. We don't feel like you're ever going to throw this tire through the window. You're going to be happy every single time. But if for some reason it does happen, we here, we got you back. So yeah. I think other, that's important the that the government did that too. It wasn't just, a, you know, a few of the uh, facilities banding together saying, Hey, we'll take care of you. No, it was the government saying, we see this as a viable industry. We see it as such an important industry for the potential of our, you know, for the future of our country that we're going to guarantee. So come on, come on to Korea and get X, Y, Z done. Yeah, it was actually, so although government is definitely involved, it's actually what's called a, a cluster, this this whole idea of clusters. And you've heard of these clusters, like Silicon Valley in the United States. Um, we have one of the largest healthcare clusters in the world called the Texas Medical Center. And they have these thing called the International Patient Advisory Committee that gets together and gets the chambers and the hotels and the hospitals and the airport and the airlines and the transportation companies and the restaurants and everybody else. And they all work together, including the, the local government and federal government, to basically make sure that the organizations uh, that, that, that send international patients, that they get high quality care in Houston and they make sure they take care of everything. Well, they have one of those in Korea and that was one of the things that made uh, Korean healthcare so good as this cluster. Also, as I sh should point out, uh, Dr. Michael Porter was involved in that early research, uh, again, uh, over a decade ago at Harvard Business School. And these clusters have proven to be very important in healthcare. So it's not just, as we talked about, a center of excellence, but it's a center of excellence and the entire community. In fact, interestingly, some of the, the most uh, successful medical tourism businesses in the world also have started to purchase, I had a whole New York Times article about this, purchase and integrate hotels because adding a hotel to medical tourism increases the overall profitability of that hospital system. Very interesting. And, and it makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to throw something at you that it's a, this is a little bit of a curveball here because this is a situation and maybe some of my listeners will, will, will hear this and maybe have a solution too. Because if you don't have one, there is an organization here in San Antonio that brings kids in internationally, brings mm -hmm. kids in that have surgeries that need to be done. That's okay. Correct. They bring them yep. here for that. They cover the 100% of the cost of the surgery. Yep. What they're having an issue with is if the kids get an infection, or if they get sick while they're here, no one will treat them. And if they have to put them back in the hospital, that's not part of the deal. Yeah. And so they're being charged exorbitant amounts. I mean, huge amounts of money. And it doesn't happen that often, but they bring in, you know, let's just say 50 kids a year, and it may happen twice. 
And in those two times, the kids may be in the hospital for three or four days, and now they have fifty, sixty, eighty thousand dollar bills yeah. for these kids being in the hospital. And there is no insurance company out there that will touch this, by the way. They won't touch this risk whatsoever because they're not American citizens. So I understand that. I've even talked to travel insurance or to yeah. to, to, to travel and travel health like, insurance companies. Like they Buka, won't touch it. Like Buka and places like that. Yeah. Right. Like like let's just say, you know, one of the one of the different Bukas that may have a travel insurance. If you're going, you're going to the Cayman Islands, you're going to single, yeah. you're going whatever, yeah. here's some insurance. Uh, a lot of co- countries actually now, since COVID, require you to have this uh, insurance because they don't want to have to cover you, right? But because the kids are coming here for a medical procedure to begin with, they won't touch it, which mm. I get it. All right. But what's the solution there? What is the, because in many cases, they want something to help protect them mm-hmm. for these things, because clearly what's happening, in, in my opinion anyway, is these hospitals are taking advantage of them. Yeah. Because they had this agreed upon price to take care of this child. Whatever happened to this child they probably got sick at that hospital or in the group place where they were at staying afterwards because they have to stay here for like two weeks after the surgery before they can travel. And now they have to be treated again, but they're being, in my opinion, being taken advantage of whenever it was goodwill that brought them here to begin yeah. with. Well, it's, I do it's have an interesting a, dynamic here, right? I, I, it's really interesting. It's fascinating. I've never been asked this question before. It's really fascinating. One, one small suggestion, if if you don't mind me making, is nah, that's what I'm the, looking for. <laughs> yeah. The um. So the we we actually had an interesting conversation with a very large county, uh, one of the largest counties in the United States. Um, in regards to talking to Mexico about this county. The county was oftentimes having to foot the bill for immigrants or people that were perhaps illegally in the country or people that didn't have access to some type of insurance or care that were had a health issue. And the country of Mexico was saying, hey, you're you're paying these bills for these people. And in the United States, it's a hundred thousand dollars. If you would just put them on a bus that you would provide, bring them down to Mexico, we would negotiate a rate, which would be half or a quarter of what that charge would be in the United States for the same type of care. So the idea would be to have, Interestingly, even though they traveled to the United States for, let's say, a very specialized type of surgery, uh, one of my neighbors actually provides uh, housing for uh, these children and their families. There's like these networks of people that just volunteer Mm -hmm. to basically help people that get pro bono care in the United States. And so you could have somebody come in the United States, get a very specialized surgery at a very well thought of uh, physician and hospital. And then let's say they had some type of adverse uh, effect or outcome that they didn't uh, expect and they needed to transfer them someplace else. Perhaps they could be transferred to a hospital in Mexico that would provide a very high level of care, 
but at a much lower cost. And then that that cost could be borne by the charity or sponsors or something. But I, I bet there's a way to do that. Uh, it's basically arbitrage. That's that's a big thing in business is the idea that, you know, there's things that are made here that are better, faster, cheaper, uh, less expensive because of certain attributes of this location than somewhere else. And we just happen to be next to a very large country that has very low healthcare cost in comparison to the United States. So maybe it, it's an international collaboration where they come here for specialized surgery, but if they need aftercare or something that can't be treated here in the United States, because it would, it would potentially run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, possibly millions of dollars, why not take them down to Mexico and then find a way to have a negotiated rate that somebody would pay that would be much less expensive than it was here in the United States? Yeah, and, and maybe that is a solution for some instances. I do know that one of the things is they what distance I, I can't tell you because I'm not for sure where all the kids come from, but I know that travel is restricted for the couple of weeks. That's why they can't go back. Yeah. That's so. That's... And and from what I understand, most of this is not ad adverse reactions to the surgery. It's getting sick. It's getting sick because they're with other kids. Now, maybe it has had some impact of course on their, their immune system or whatever, yeah. But they are getting sick and they've got the flu or they got COVID or they got something that's going on that put them back in the hospital because they just had a surgery and now they're weak in state and they're in there. And so there's probably additional care that has to happen. Yeah. Um, but what they were really approaching me about was insurance. And I'm like, yeah, ain't nobody going to want to, I'll call some folks, yeah. but ain't nobody going to want to touch this because you want insurance on somebody coming to do this and you want to cover all the rest of the stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a little risky for most of your insurance yeah. companies. The international insurance providers may be a little more cost effective because they're used to covering, you know, people, for example, people in the Caribbean, this is actually one of the largest flows into the United States. I mean, the Chinese and the Saudis and stuff like that were, were major travelers, at least the Chinese were before they currently, those numbers have dried up. And so we, we actually worked with one of the largest healthcare systems in the United States, very well known, one of the top three systems that you've heard of, do some research to try and find out where other medical tourists might come from in the future. And one of the places that we looked at was the Caribbean, the uh, people in the Caribbean, particularly if you could, if you have a little bit of money, if you get sick, you go to Miami. Um, most people in the Caribbean don't stay in the Caribbean countries because overall healthcare is hit or miss there, but they know they're going to get good care in Miami. So, <clears throat> so uh, they oftentimes have international health insurance that helps to pay for some of the, the cost when they, when they go to Miami to get access to care. So they essentially have a healthcare plan that allows them to travel into Miami to get access to care. So there could be something like that. The other thing yeah. is um, when it comes to the pharmaceuticals, uh, many of the pharmaceutical pro uh, companies now have really very good programs to provide um, these pharmaceuticals at low cost or no cost to people that, that have need. And so, uh, you know, that you could yeah. reduce at least the pharmaceutical costs by getting, by reaching out to these pharmaceutical companies. And of course they do it for the PR as well. They wouldn't right. 
they wouldn't be opposed to getting on national TV and saying, Hey, <laughs> if this kid needs our drug, we're going to go ahead and give we it to him. We got him. For, Look for at us. We're awesome. Because, <laughs> because we care. Right. So right. yeah, those types of things, but it, it's an interesting issue and it it's international health travel. So it's right yeah. up my alley. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is medical tourism into the United States to provide services to kids that couldn't get these services uh, uh, otherwise. And it's an interesting thing that can happen and it doesn't happen, but rarely, but when it does, it apparently is a big enough issue to the organization that's paying for all of this, that they're looking for a solution. Yeah. Well, uh, you and I are going to have to get together again in the future because we're about to do some additional research that you're going to find fascinating. So we talked about pharmaceutical care, dental care, medical, surgical care, but also some of the alternative areas, surrogacy, tourism, uh, deaf uh, tourism, as they call it, which is doctor-assisted suicide, where people will travel to other states or other countries uh, where doctor-assisted suicide is legal. Um, and also psychedelics. Uh, so people for many years have been going to places like Peru to access psychedelics. There's a lot of clinical research that's going on right now, some of which is showing preliminary results um, where psychedelics might possibly be effective for things like PTSD. Uh, we're here in San Antonio, Texas, which is military city, USA, and we have a lot of people, veterans that are suffering from uh, PTSD and it's, um, you know, treatments may not be uh, what they're looking for in terms of the outcomes. We expect um, that travel. So you may remember a few years back when Colorado and Oregon uh, opened up the, the markets for not only medical marijuana, but also recreational. So there was reports at that time that places dispensaries uh, on the border regions of places like Oregon and Colorado were actually seeing up to 40 or 60% of their total um, customers were from out of state. Um, so that's currently happening. As you may recall, during the pandemic, both Oregon and Colorado decided to open up the state for psychedelics. So microdosing and things of that nature for PTSD may actually be a trend right now where people are traveling into those states for access to those treatments, if you will, alternative treatments. So I, I expect we're going to see many more things like that and where people are traveling for things that they don't have access to here. Um, the other thing, the United States, this is going to be a shocker to most U.S. citizens. So a lot of your listeners are going to get an extra on this, right? The FDA is rapidly falling behind on being able to get the, the newest and best uh, drugs to the American populace. Uh, it is faster and easier to bring a drug to market in India. And interestingly, in many cases, you can actually take the clinical trial data from a place like India and bring it over with you and bring it to the United States as part of your clinical trial process in the US. So meaning that in India, it's possible that new drugs, let's say a new cancer vaccine or a new treatment for MS will be available in India and upwards of six to seven years before wow. it's available in the United States. Wow. So even though we, uh, again, under the Trump administration, we had this wonderful law passed that was right to try, which was the idea that if you are terminal 
and there's a drug and uh, treatment protocol and you have terminal cancer, why should we restrict that? <laughs> in, in years past, the government actually kept people from trying these drugs for God knows why. It was a stupid uh, thing, a rule that they had in place. But the, the Trump administration got rid of that rule. It was really good. So right to try was just something that, that should have been should have happened years ago. In fact, there's a book that was written by a friend of mine that suggested that potentially hundreds of thousands of people died because of this FDA rule, which didn't allow people to get access to these treatments while they were in some type, some uh, phase of the protocol status. Anyways, so right now there are drugs being tested in India and being available to the population that are not available in the United States. And I suspect that's only going to continue in the future because the FDA process is a fairly lo uh, lo long, slow and laborious process, uh, laborious process. Sorry. Uh, so it, it's uh, that's unfortunately another negative in the united states is that some of the newest drugs may not be available in the u.s for u.s citizens where they are available for people in india people in even europe the process is about three years faster than it is in the u.s wow that's a uh, you hate to hear that but i i really believe it's not surprising we love our bureaucracy here <laughs> yeah it's unfortunate Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. Well, man, I have really enjoyed speaking with you. This Thank has you. been, uh, you know, you never, you, you never know all the, the layers to something until you start peeling that onion. Right. So yeah. it is, it's really been enjoyable. I hope that the folks that have listened in have, have got something out of this and it opened up their eyes to what really medical tourism is all about, what it can be. Uh, that it's not really limited to just going anywhere in the world, but it's going just a few cities over sometimes because that's still, that's still being uh, in what we, what is in, in the world of medical tourism. It's still what it is. Uh, I think we're going to see more and more of it as time goes by, because it really seems like we're losing more of that rural area and we're getting more, of almost like what you said before clusters we're getting more clusters of places around the country that people are traveling to and as we see that and as we see the uh more of these conglomerates come and own hospitals and hospital systems and yep. bring all their all their toys together in one place we're gonna have to go wherever those toys are and that's i true. think that's just something we could see more and more of in this country as time goes by once again, David, certainly appreciate you being with us. Uh, is there any final comments you want to leave the uh, the audience with? Well, I just, um, most of this is buyer beware. So please realize that unfortunately every situation is not going to be the right fit for everyone. And you just gotta, you gotta make decisions that make sense for you and your situation and your family. And, and by the way, I just wanted to say, uh, Harlan, for what you're doing in terms of this podcast, in terms of sharing this type of information uh, to the public and to your listeners, it, you're doing just a great public service and, and you deserve a lot of praise for that as well. Well, thank you very much, David. And if someone would like to have you come in and talk about this, uh, would like to interview themselves or whatever, can they reach you at your email? Yes. Yeah, sure. It's a, uh, it's Vequist, my last name, V E Q U I S T at 
uiwtx.edu. Uh, you can also find us on the website, which is medicaltourismresearch.org. Um, I'm a professor at the University of the Incarnate Word and the HEB School of Business Administration. Uh, those of you in Texas, I don't need to tell you who HEB is. Those <laughs> of you outside of Texas, it's a, this wonderful uh, grocery store chain that we're very much in love with uh, here in Texas. And uh, there you go. And uh, gosh, right. yeah. Yeah, reach out to me anytime. I'd, I'd love to help in any way I can. Um, unfortunately, I don't give individual advice on specific hospitals that you could choose. Uh, I'm a researcher. I, I kind of look at it in an aggregate view, but um, would love to help. And I, I hope your listeners got something very awesome. important from this. Great. Thank you so much, guys. That is medicaltourismresearch.org. Long name, but great site to go find out more of the things that we talked about and you probably even find dig into some more information there and i'm going to stay abreast of that because i want to see all the new data that you're going to be coming up with here about the pharmaceuticals and stuff that you're talking about so that's great awesome. and yeah we'll definitely have to get you on again here in a few months to to catch up and see all what the latest greatest is um and one little side note my daughter goes to the University of Incarnate Word. Uh, I had forgot that uh, whenever I'd met David before, I forgot that that's where he was a professor at. And that is where my daughter goes to school. And you have uh, a daughter graduating there this next year, right? And have a, a son coming in there, right? That's correct. And we, so we're, we're called the Cardinals. So this is our, our little Cardinal uh, thing that we have. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, Cardinal <laughs> proud, so. Yeah, a great university. Uh, been there for a long time. You guys 18, look it up. 1881. So I'm not you know. going to tell you the story of how it started, but it's very, <laughs> very interesting. Yes, it is. Tell you the food court is in the morgue. How about that for a thing? <laughs> you guys appreciate y'all being here. Y'all hope y'all have a blessed and blessed week. Thanks again, David. We'll catch you next time. Health and Wealth Power Hour. We're out of here. Thank you, Harlan. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us today. Certainly enjoyed all that great information on medical tourism. Hope you got a whole lot out of that. Uh, don't forget about the other events we have coming up. Every Monday, I start your week off with a kickstart, give you some updated industry news, 10.30 a.m. Central Time, LinkedIn Audio Room. Y'all check it out. Just go out to uh, my uh, page there on LinkedIn. You can click on me, go to my events, the kickstart every Monday, 10.30 a.m. Central Time. And then we wrap up the week every week on Friday, 10.30 a.m. with The Wrap. Talk about the industry news from that week. Anything else that you may need to know that's going on to help you better serve your clients. And then the big event we do monthly, Why Does Healthcare Suck? This month, we're going to follow the money. July 25th, 11 a.m. Central Time. That is a Tuesday. Join us. You can participate as well. There'll be opportunities for you to chime in. Let us know what your opinion is. But why does healthcare suck? The 25th of July, 11 a.m. Central Time. Y'all join us. Have a blessed week.